You can turn with me if you will. Not that it's a hard one to remember. But if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. My apologies for all the tearjerker hymns already this morning. Um, George and I were discussing last night, we could have just gone with like some country music soundtrack or something like that, but you know, it's my own fault. I picked these hymns. And Georgia made us sing them all week in preparation for Sunday, so it's only fitting that I make you all teary-eyed, too, if I can pull it off. Um, You all know that I like to work humor into my sermons, because I like to laugh. I love to laugh, like Uncle Albert and Mary Poppins. The more I laugh, the more I'm a merrier me, and I like the merrier me. Now, as I mentioned last week, I do sometimes struggle with being mopey and melancholy, and so laughter is good medicine for me. It's why we watch, like, Alfred Hitchcock, right? It, like, makes murder funny, too, like everything. (laughs) This week, I I got frustrated at the office the one day. I've been reorganizing all of the church records, all of them. And I was racing out the door for dinner because Georgia had called me, and I, I dropped the folder and spilled a bunch of stuff, which elicited some choice words and... By the time I got home, I was irritable, mopey, and gloomy, and Georgia knows how to fix that. First, she takes me for a walk, because I'm easier to walk than the dogs. (laughs) And then she fed me, which is a little bit harder than feeding the dogs, and then we watched two episodes of 30 Rock so that I could get over everything by laughing, right? Laughter is good for the soul. But today, I have the odd responsibility of commending mourning to you. How many of you have experienced mourning at some point? We we generally think of mourning in terms of crying. How many of you enjoy crying? (laughs) (laughs) Said no man ever before today. Um, No man uses the phrase like, I just need a good cry. Maybe Jason, maybe Jason. We also have the phrase ugly crying, right, which is like defined as every girl watching A Walk to Remember and also every dad, to be fair, watching Field of Dreams. So most of us, I would venture to guess, don't like to cry and certainly not in public. It makes us embarrassed and it exposes us at our most vulnerable. Uh, Some of us hardly ever cry, like my wife, and others, like Jason, cry very easily. But to cry... To weep is basically to mourn out loud. You can also mourn silently. If you ever watch old westerns, uh, you sometimes see the ladies wearing black because they're officially in mourning, and it was considered proper in that time that Widow McGillicuddy needed to wear black for several months as an outward sign of grief, even if she didn't like her late husband. But wearing black and truly mourning are not the same thing, and I think the kind of mourning that Jesus is talking about is not a formality like wearing black for three months before you can go courting again, and nor is it simply crying. We all know babies cry, right? But babies don't mourn in the sense that we mean that word, right? So no, I think this is a mourning of the soul. He's talking about mourning in spirit, just as he was not talking about material poverty last week, 
uh, this beatitude is not about superficial mourning. This is gut-wrenching, my insides feel hollow kind of mourning, the kind of mourning where you forget to eat. I think some of us are familiar with that kind of mourning. Now, perhaps on its face, this is the most ludicrous of all of the Beatitudes, maybe even insulting, because you could just about translate it as happy are the sad. It's ridiculous, which is probably exactly the reason why translators typically translate Makarios as blessed and not happy, because otherwise it would be hard to take such a statement seriously, I think. And yet, it's not really a whole lot less striking, is it, just because they translate it as blessed. Because if we're truly mourning, it's hard to feel blessed. To be mourning typically means you've lost, you've lost something, right? And the thing you lost is often what we would consider something that was a blessing. And so basically Jesus, you could say, is saying like, well, blessed are those who have lost a blessing. Huh? You know, it's weird. And it's not the only place we find this kind of formula in Scripture If you go back to the book of Ecclesiastes, the author says, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Now, I prefer to feast when I'm in mourning. Uh, I like feeding my feelings, you know. I don't think these two ideas have to be necessarily mutually exclusive. It's not how I would have written that verse. The best funerals are the well-catered funerals, right? If you watch it's a, 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 a Christmas Carol, any one of the versions, you know, when, when Scrooge sees that those guys after, you know, it's the, the spirit of Christmas future and he sees the guys and they're like, well, I'll go to the funeral if there's lunch, you know, like, yeah, yeah, lunch helps. The week my father died, I gained 10 pounds. People kept sending food and I couldn't barely fit into my suit for the funeral. It was embarrassing. But... The author of Ecclesiastes explains this little proverb in the following way. He says, It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. In other words, we're all going to die, so we might as well face it. Now that's wisdom, for sure. But Jesus is making a slightly different point, isn't he? He says, Blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they shall be comforted. The author of Ecclesiastes seems less concerned with comfort throughout the book. He kind of likes brutal truth. But Jesus promises comfort. But as we think about this particular verse, we need to define our terms. We need to think about, I think, what mourning really is and what comfort really means and also consider how we can obey this as a command. Because most of us are not officially in mourning. Most of you aren't wearing black. But if this is a command from Jesus to count ourselves among the morning, essentially, we have to consider what that means in the everyday. Because otherwise, we'll only be blessed when we lose loved ones, right? And I think this has broader application than that. So I think we need to start with a definition of mourning. Because again, if Jesus is giving us this as a new law, then this blessing must apply at all times in a sense. Otherwise, the verse would only be useful at funerals. If I'm not currently in mourning, it has no application to me. You know, good for the mourning people, I guess. But, but when you look at the Beatitudes, it seems pretty obvious that we should always try to be these things. You always want to be meek. You always want to be thirsty for righteousness, right? You always want to be merciful. That's not a conditioned by the, the, the time and season of life. They're universal things we always want to strive for. And so one can assume that in some sense, Jesus means for us to always be in mourning. This verse can not only apply to funerals, though we should certainly use it there, but how are we to mourn even if we aren't officially 
in mourning? Well, I want to start thinking of it in terms of two questions. What do we mourn and how do we mourn? I think it's possible to mourn well and to mourn badly. I also think there are things worth mourning and some things that are not worth mourning. Most of our mothers have told us not to cry over spilled milk. Though on a bad day, if you spill enough milk, I'm sure even a mother would cry. But in my house, Georgia does not tolerate crying over unworthy things. All of my kids have had the experience of hearing her say, you may not cry. (laughs) For example, in my house, you may not cry over a just punishment. If you get spanked and you were really asking for it, tears are frowned on in my house. If you cry over doing your chores. Or if you get outvoted and you have to watch the movie that you didn't want to watch. There's very little tolerance in my house for foolish tears. My wife is hardcore Irish. If you're going to cry, you better have a legitimate cause. But grown-ups do this stuff too, don't we? Even if we don't shed actual tears, right? We'll manifest all the other stages of grief over the most trivial of things. Minor inconveniences. uh, Your favorite team losing. Presidential elections. You know, it can take a long time to recover from what are really, in the grand scheme of things, relatively small matters. But if not spilled milk, what is worth crying over? What should we mourn? Well, I think there are generally two categories of tragedy in Scripture uh, that Scripture really speaks to. And in broad terms, you could think of it as sin and sin's consequences. We are all aware that at creation, God made all things good. Adam was not born under a death sentence like we are. There was a time when Adam and Eve walked this earth in the company of God without having any legitimate reason to cry, even less than my kids have doing morning chores. They did work, but they enjoyed the work, and life was good. But sin had some pretty heavy consequences, didn't it? And now everything that is wrong, everything that is broken, everything in life that sucks, those are the consequences of sin, either your own or somebody else's. And even seemingly random hardships only exist because of Adam, our first father. So this world has problems, and they are worth mourning over. The consequences of sin are initially laid out in Genesis 3, but it really, I mean, it includes a lot of things. We're talking about all suffering, separations, loss, broken relationships, hard work with little to show for it, everyday petty annoyances. He mentions the thorns and the thistles, right? Pain, death. That's just a short list. And you don't have to be a Christian to understand these things. Every one of us, believers and unbelievers alike, have experienced the consequences of sin. Because we're all living under the curse, whether we acknowledge it or not. So if you live long enough, you will experience sin's consequences, and you will mourn. We have all been to funerals. We have all felt pain. We have all suffered at some point. 
But a Christian has an added obligation because Jesus' disciples are called to mourn the sin that caused the suffering. We are called to mourn the disease and not just the symptoms. And if we know our Bibles well enough, we know that all the suffering in the world has a source. We lament the sin in the world. And not only that, we know that sin resides in us. And we mourn that as well. It's relatively easy when you think about it to lament the consequences of other people's sins. That comes kind of naturally to us. I mean, if you think about all the headlines and all the commentary you've heard in the last two years, you know, politically, racially, covidly, uh, tensions within the American church, it's very easy, you'll notice, to point to someone else's sin and scream about the consequences. And often mourning is just a mask that resentment wears. Tears can be proud too. It is much more humbling and unnatural to mourn the sin within ourselves and to weep over our own sinfulness. That's an acquired skill. This is what the Apostle Paul calls godly grief. He says in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So godly grief implies ungodly, worldly grief. So we have to think about how we grieve and how we mourn. First off, we should only mourn over appropriate things. I don't think Jesus is blessing the spilled milk criers. If you were weeping and lamenting over something stupid or maybe even something sinful, this blessing's not aimed at that. You should repent and focus on mourning the real stuff, the sin and the consequences of the sin. But it's also true that even if you are mourning the real stuff, you can do it well, but you can also do it poorly. Not all methods of mourning are appropriate. Now, you've heard it said, everyone grieves in their own way. That's true in a sense. I think we tend to give people a lot of leeway when people are grieving uh, to express that in a variety of ways. But it's quite possible to hide your sin behind the grieving process. Suffering can often become a justification for sin. So psychologists will talk about the five stages of grief, right? Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance, right? But even those steps can be abused and are kind of hard to fit into this framework because depression, depending on how you approach it, as I've mentioned before, can be kind of sinful. Uh, God doesn't really bargain with you. Uh, Denial doesn't really help anything. I have been to a funeral where the entire service consisted of one grieving family member shaking their fist at God. It was the angriest eulogy I have ever heard. God was never mentioned by name, but there was definitely rage there. This was not healthy grieving. Some people never leave the denial stage. They slap a permanent happy face on a bad situation. Uh, People will hide pain behind humor. Others find consolation in addictions and escapism. Pain can justify drug abuse. Loneliness can be an excuse for pornography. Every alcoholic has a story of how some past sorrow drove them to this low place. What the world considers grieving is often self-destructive. Anger is not mourning. 
Shame is not mourning. Internalizing is not mourning. Escapism is not mourning. Despair is not mourning. Self-pity is not mourning. If we're going to mourn, it's not enough to mourn each in our own way because we're disciples of Jesus and we need to mourn God's way. If we want this blessing to apply to us, we need to weep over the things that make God weep. And we need to mourn the way he would. Now, what would that look like? I thought, you know, the artist formerly known as Prince sang the song, When Doves Cry. The answer to the question, how do doves cry, seems to be this synthesizer. Now, uh, I have a lot of mourning doves in my yard, and I happen to know they do not sound like a synthesizer, so Prince lied to me. But it can seem just as mysterious to ask, you know, what does it look like when God weeps? If only we had an example of Jesus mourning and weeping. Oh, wait, Uh, we have to cheat. We have to look outside of Matthew's gospel. Luke and John each record that Jesus, the most blessed man, did in fact weep. In Luke 19, we read this. It says, when he drew near the city, it's Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they won't leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, these tears come while everyone else is partying. We call it the triumphal entry, and it looked like it. And yet Jesus is crying. It's his party. He'll cry if he wants to. John records in chapter 11 that Jesus wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. It says, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. One of the worst sermons I have ever sat through claimed that Jesus' tears at the death of Lazarus were angry tears and that Jesus was just furious at everybody for their lack of faith. That's absolute nonsense as if Jesus wasn't really a man and able to express grief. No, he weeps for the same reason many of us do, because everyone else is. He weeps because even though he will raise Lazarus up, Lazarus will die again one day, and these tears are going to have to be shed all over again. I wondered this week why none of the gospel writers record how Jesus handled the death of Joseph of Nazareth, his adopted earthly father. Joseph had taught him the carpentry trade. He had raised him and his earthly siblings, and yet we hear nothing about him beyond when Jesus was 12 and they visited Jerusalem in Luke 2. And it's generally assumed Joseph had passed away before Jesus' ministry began. And I'm sure that was a formative event in Jesus' life, and yet none of the Gospels record it. And it occurred to me this week that such a detail might have been helpful. for some of us. But I take a lot of solace in 
the account of Lazarus. It's like Aslan's tears and the magician's nephew. It says that he understands our suffering. He knows. Now, obviously, Jesus never had to weep over his own sin. Nor does he ever weep out of self-pity. Uh, even on the way to the cross, he tells the women who are weeping for him, say, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. But I, I want you to see that these two instances show us what grieves the heart of our Lord. What makes Jesus weep, what makes him mourn, is sin and its consequences. He weeps because Jerusalem is going to suffer even though he knows they deserve it. And he weeps over Lazarus even though he's, he knows he's about to raise him up. But why? Because he hates seeing his people suffer. Jesus looks at us, walking around, hurting ourselves, hurting each other, suffering because of our own rebellion and stupidity, and he weeps. How many of us mourn that way? How many of us are truly weeping over sin and its consequences? How many of you mourn the cause of suffering and not just the suffering itself? You'll notice in today's culture, uh, it often considers suffering to be random. Uh, Some kid will get shot, or someone stabs a store clerk, or a terrorist blows something up, and every politician and newscaster will inevitably call it a senseless act. A random, senseless act of violence. We treat illness the same way. We can't really predict it, so we assume everything is arbitrary. And instead of actually recognizing what the root cause is, we get angry at the hospital bureaucracy. We get angry at our doctors. We get angry at the insurance company. We get angry at the drug companies. We get angry at the government for not covering it all. We struggle to mourn as a culture because we want to blame somebody. But we never look in the mirror. Sin has caused this, and we are all to blame. We can shake our fist at Adam if we want to, But do any of you have a better track record than Adam? I don't. To mourn well, we need to know what we have lost. And it's more than just a loved one or our health or our sense of safety. We have lost our innocence. And we have lost our communion with God. And, beloved, the more I've thought about this whole thing over the the course of this past week, I became convinced that no unbeliever is capable of true mourning. Not the way Jesus means it. Now, what do I mean by that? Jesus is making a promise here, but his promises are not universal and they're not unconditional. This entire sermon is addressed to his disciples, the people who sit at his feet, right? Jesus is talking to his people. And there's the obvious fact that not everyone who mourns is truly comforted in any obvious way. In fact, I'd venture to say that no one is ever fully comforted here on earth. When you lose somebody, you never really get over it. I mean, sure, it stings less. Time can dull the wounds, if nothing else. But to be truly comforted means complete 
healing. And Jesus wasn't promising complete comfort in the here and now, and that's obvious because obviously not everybody receives much comfort in the present, but it's also clear in his words. He says, blessed are those who mourn, present tense, for they will be comforted, future tense. And again, this is not a health and wealth message, right? He's not talking about the here and now. The promise is that there will be comfort later. And the question becomes, how long do we have to wait? As the psalmist says, how long, O Lord? Well, the hint from the other Beatitudes is that most of these promises get fulfilled in eternity. But we have an even better reason to think that. One of the best promises in all of Scripture is found in Revelation 21. You don't need to turn there. But in John's vision of the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, what does he say? I said, I heard a loud voice from the throne. That's Jesus saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Heaven is where the tears stop. It's where you go for one last good, ugly cry, and Jesus will pull out a big old hanky, cleaner than your granddad's, and wipe them all away. And you will never weep or mourn again. That's beautiful. That's Jesus' promise to his disciples, those who truly mourn, but it's not a universal promise. I want you to consider, in contravention of that, how God describes hell, especially in the book of Matthew. In this very gospel, no less than six times, Jesus describes hell as a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping's bad enough, the gnashing of teeth implies bitterness the regret that Paul was talking about that we don't have. Sadness and anger swirl in an endless rage for all eternity in hell. And Jesus doesn't say that the people in hell are there because they never suffered in this life. Anyone can suffer, and everybody does. We don't have to work hard at that. But suffering is not what saves you. It's a very commonly accepted idea in our culture, I think, that people who have had it hard in this life will automatically be rewarded with something easier on the other side. But suffering doesn't make you saved, it makes you human. And some people, even suffering people, will spend eternity weeping. You'll hear even unbelievers say of people who die at the end of a long illness, well, they're at peace now. How do they know that? Can we really say that of everyone who ever suffered? The Bible makes no such promises for those who've rejected Christ. Jesus promises eternal comfort to his disciples. So if everyone suffers and everyone gets sad, and yet not everybody will escape eternal weeping, I can only conclude that unbelievers do not mourn in the way Jesus means it here. And I think, pardon me, that's because only Christians can begin to mourn their sin. Only we can mourn sin in addition to its consequences. The world thinks all suffering is random and meaningless, but, beloved, we know where suffering comes from. We know how things got this way. So we mourn not only the pain, but the sin that has caused it. We mourn the sin in others, but we also mourn the sin in ourselves. To mourn is not uniquely Christian, but to mourn our sin is. And we take it all to Jesus, because only he can bear that load. 
Now, that's complete and utter nonsense to the unbelieving world. But we're not called to follow the pattern of this world, are we? Called to mourn sin and its consequences. Our unbelieving world does not know how to mourn like that. So let's show them. Let's point them to the source. I want to read one other passage. You don't have to turn there. 2 Corinthians. Paul writes in chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If the source of all pain and loss is sin, the source of all comfort is God. And that is why Paul calls him the God of all comfort. He's the source. And while you may receive a degree of comfort on earth, you will never be fully comforted apart from him. Make no mistake, anyone can mourn the death of a loved one. Everyone does that. But those who will not mourn the sin that created this mess and take it to Jesus are ignoring the cause, and they will make up for it in eternity. That's the picture Jesus gives us. They will have eternity to weep and gnash their teeth over all their regrets. That's not what I want. I don't think that's what you want either. Jesus has promised his disciples that if we mourn now, we will be comforted. It's a gift we don't get to open yet, but it's real and it's precious and it's a promise worth sharing with unbelieving friends. So let's show them how to mourn well. And let's show them even if we don't do it perfectly. Because I want to say also that this is not about mourning your sin perfectly any more than we mourn our loved ones perfectly or do anything else perfectly. The cross is big enough to cover even bad mourning. But only a sinner transformed by the gospel can truly recognize his or her sin and mourn it. Only the Holy Spirit can show you the depth of your sin and assure you of pardon and keep you from despair. Only Christians can realize that their sin breaks God's heart, and yet have the strength in Christ to stand. Repentance itself is a form of mourning. So brothers and sisters, let's show the world how to mourn and let's give them a taste of the comfort we've been promised. We can come alongside them in their suffering because we are comforted in part so we can comfort others, as Paul said. Don't despise unbelievers in their pain. Even if their grief is not godly, it doesn't mean the pain isn't real. The point is not to rebuke unbelievers for mourning poorly, They desperately need comfort more than they know. So give them a taste. Give them a sample of what Jesus has promised us in full. If you know anyone who is mourning, that's what they need. Mourn with them, comfort them, point them to the source of the comfort. You know, the Bible says so much about suffering and mourning and sadness. It even devotes an entire book to sadness, Lamentations. We already sang, great is thy faithfulness. That comes out of Lamentations 3. But the promise of comfort appears throughout the scriptures. And one of the things I just wanted to finish with is actually Luke's version of this beatitude in in a different sermon Jesus gave in Luke 6. He promises laughter. He says, blessed are those who weep now, for you shall laugh. Our faithful Savior promises his disciples comfort and laughter. That's what we look forward to. He died for sin and its consequences so that his people would one day be free from both. That's who we serve. That's the God of all comfort. And that's good news worth sharing. Let's pray.
Gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. Lord, this was a, a, a hard sermon to prepare. It was a hard one to preach, and maybe it's a hard one to hear, too. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us. Lord, you issue these things as blessings, Lord. That's what the Beatitudes are meant to be. Help us to receive them as such, Lord. Help us to feel your comfort, Lord, and to feel it so abundantly that we're able to share it and turn around and give it to others. We pray that through that, Lord, people would see you, that they would see your Son. We ask these things in his name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.